Is the New Testament reliable? Do we know that we actually have written down in the New Testament what the original authors wrote down? Today we're going to be talking to Brian Chilton of the Bellator Christie Podcast. Welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Welcome back. Today, like I mentioned in the intro, uh, there's a lot of people that believe that the New Testament that we have today is filled with perhaps corruptions. Uh, that the New Test- Testament, maybe there was a, a game of telephone and that uh, many things that the authors originally wrote down in those original autographs somehow have been corrupted, lost, changed, whatever over the the 2,000 years leading up to now. Is that true? Do we have in our hands, basically, you know, do we have what the authors originally wrote? But in English, of course. (laughs) Today we're going to be speaking with Brian Chilton of the Bellator Christie podcast. Uh, I have been a guest on his show many times in the past. Uh, This will be his first time on my podcast, and I'm hoping that it won't be the last. Uh, Brian's a really good guy. Uh, We really hit it off. I love talking to him. But a little bit really quick about Brian. Brian Chilton's degrees include a Master in Divinity in Theology from Liberty University, uh, a Bachelor of Science in Philosophy and Religious Studies, a Certificate in Christian Apologetics from Biola University, and he plans to start doctoral studies soon. Uh, His website, like I mentioned, bellatorchristi.com. I'm going to spell that because uh, as you're going to hear right at the end of this podcast, I tried to find his uh, website by just Googling it uh, phonetically, and I ended up seeing uh, some, what appeared to be some uh, MMA fighter woman. And so, (laughs) just so you guys can find it, it's spelled B-E-L-L-A-T-O-R-C-H-E. R-I-S-T-I dot com. Uh, Brian currently serves as the pastor of the Huntsville Baptist Church in Yadkinville. I'm not even sure if I'm saying that right. Yadkinville, North Carolina. Brian, welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Well, thanks, Michael. It's a joy and privilege to be with you. Uh, yeah, absolutely, Brian. And, and so, friends, I've, I've been a guest on Brian's uh, podcast before as well a few times. So Brian's podcast, the Bellatory Christie podcast. Uh, I've been on his podcast several times before. Great show. By the way, friends, if you haven't checked it out, you really should check out his podcast. He has a, a lot of good guests, a lot of good content, and um, it's it's well worth your time. So so find that. Brian, uh, where can you find uh, your podcast? Is it on iTunes? And what other places can they find it? Yes, actually, we have uh, four avenues that we're located. You can uh, one go to the well, actually five. Uh, you can go to the podcast at uh, bellatorchristie.com. That's the, where the website I should say. Uh, but we're also on iTunes. Uh, we're on TuneIn 
the TuneIn Radio app. Uh, we're on Stitcher as well now as Google Play. So if you go to any of those four, uh, we're available there on those pod uh, podcatchers. I think I've heard them called uh, or apps, whatever you want to call them. But yeah, we're available on all those avenues, and uh, we've we've been getting some good response. And uh, uh, unfortunately, with the system I have, I can't see how many listens we have. But it's so cool that to, to hear from someone to say, hey, I, heard, I caught your podcast the other day or someone online mentioning a, a podcast that they had heard. And so, uh, yeah, I do encourage everyone, to, if you get a chance, to go check us out. Uh, also on the website, if you go to bellatorchristie.com, uh, there's a place where you can subscribe. Uh, you enter in your email address, and by doing so, you'll receive all the articles uh, posted by myself. I have some other folks who uh, write articles along with me that we post on the website as well. And uh, also links to all the podcasts uh, in your inbox absolutely free. So we do encourage people to go and do that as well. Mm, that's great. So today, friends, we're going to be talking about the New Testament. Uh, you know, there are many atheists and, and secular scholars out there. They claim that we don't really have the New Testament as it was originally written. Uh, and they'll make claims like, uh, we, we really don't know for certain what Jesus Christ actually said, you know, like the Jesus seminar. They, <laughs> they'll sit down and right. uh, vote on what they think Christ actually said versus what he didn't say. Um, there's many claims that the New Testament was written far too late and that maybe legends crept into the text. And many of the books couldn't have even been written by the authors that we Christians ascribe to them. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about the New Testament do we have what was originally written, you know, and uh, can we trust it as God breathed? Is it actually uh, the same thing that the original authors wrote 2,000 years ago, give or take? <laughs> and so uh, starting off with a uh, terrible question because it's, there's just too much to it. And I apologize, Brian, but uh, you know, <laughs> no problem. we've got all these claims that uh, the New Testament, uh, we don't know what it really said. We don't know if we actually have what the New Testament, you know, as it was written. Um, so first of all, can you explain the basics of how we ended up with the New Testament? For example, what did the authors of the New Testament write their gospels and their letters on? How were they preserved? Do we have any of the originals? Uh, what is a codex? What is a manuscript? Basically, give us a basic introduction to how we got our New Testament. Absolutely. Let me first of all say that this topic was one of the reasons uh, why I uh, not only left the ministry, I, I came to know the Lord at the year at the age of seven and uh, entered the gospel ministry right about 15 years of age. So God <laughs> called me in the ministry very early. And so but later in my early 20s. It was this very issue that made me take a step back away from the ministry and actually uh, drift towards a form of agnosticism for about seven years uh, because the question was, in my mind, you know, you had guys like the Jesus Seminar or the, the gentleman in the Jesus Seminar saying that we couldn't trust the Bible. And so this is a big question. You know, I would, I'm a type of person that if I'm not going to stand up and tell people something that I don't believe or, or that I'm not sure of or, or can't know beyond a, beyond a shadow of a doubt or beyond reasonable doubt that it's true. 
So this is a very important topic. So this is this is how how we came about to get our New Testament. Um, it it all started uh, by, by of course the uh, preaching and teaching the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, and um, and and this culture which was considered to be Second Temple Judaism, it was largely what is considered to be an oral culture. And I think we're going to talk about this a little bit, uh, a little bit later about the game of telephone. Um, <laughs> right. And and some people ask that question about how it goes. Well, but this time, this day and time, you know, you have individuals who are um, hearing the message of Jesus. They're, they're seeing the miracles that are being performed and things of this nature. And so later they transcribe uh, for future generations the teachings of Jesus. Uh, they record. Uh, for instance, Luke records the history of the not only the biography of Jesus, but also the history of the church, uh, the early church. And so uh, you have uh, letters being written by individuals. Uh, the Apostle Paul is, uh, is is one. He writes at least 13 letters attributed to him. Uh, John, he writes letters to the church. Uh, Peter does as well. You have individuals like James and uh, a man by the name of Jude. Uh, both of whom are most likely the brothers of Jesus. Uh, and uh, you have all these guys writing these documents, Matthew, Mark, uh, you know, Luke, and John, and, uh, and the rest that we described. And so they're writing down these uh, the teachings of Jesus to preserve the apostolic message, that is, the preservation of the teachings of Jesus. And so they write down their uh, these these documents that preserve the, the teaching, the life, and ministry of Jesus uh, to pass on to future generations. Uh, initially, on uh, many scholars believe uh, papyrus. Now, the trouble with papyrus is it's taken from a plant. They make these strips and um, and paste them together. The trouble of it is is that it doesn't have a long shelf life. Uh, they did have other type of um, uh, scrolls that they use on like parchment of elements, things of that nature. It had a longer shelf life, but they were a lot more expensive to produce. Uh, later on, as the church developed, they began to um, uh, the technology of the time began to come up with a thing called a codex, which is very similar to our modern books. It would have these pieces of paper that bound together with leather. And uh, the codices would preserve a lot more than the papyrus documents would. And so that's essentially how we came about to have the New Testament that we have in our possession. Okay. And so you brought up the game of telephone. Uh, Many atheists, secular scholars, Jesus Seminar, uh, even some seminary teachers will compare the transmission of the New Testament um, to a game of telephone. So we've got this situation where uh, for 2,000 years, uh, this the, the various books of the New Testament were passed from one person to another, uh, and each time it's passed on, somebody's adding to it. Maybe they're not doing it on purpose, but they're changing some of the words, uh, taking out some of the words, forgetting certain things. And so basically, over 2,000 years, suddenly we have this New Testament, but it's nothing like what the original authors wrote down. Um, what process did these scribes use to ensure that we have the New Testament as the authors were given it from God? Great question. Well, f- first of all, the whole concept of the game of telephone is a little bit anachronistic. It's, it's, it's taken out of uh, perspective of, of the chronology or of time. 
because, um, well, <laughs> in fact, I even come across some further evidence to verify what I'm getting ready to tell you. The more a culture depends on written material, uh, the less uh, they depend on their memory. In contrast, the more a culture depends on their memory, the more that they, they can uh, can hold. In fact, there's evidence that uh, even in recent times that cultures that are basically mo more likely to be oral cultures can memorize large segments of information and pass it on from generation to generation without changing any major detail of the story whatsoever, uh, especially when it becomes like a community event. And we see the same thing happening in um, the, the days of Jesus. In fact, uh, it, it was far more likely to individuals of Jesus's day. In fact, many rabbis, I've, I've heard it put, memorized entire books of scripture. Uh, I even heard, uh, I, I don't have the, the reference with me right now, but I heard uh, uh, from a very uh, credible source that's saying that in many circles, uh, a rabbi or a person could not teach from a book in the Bible until they had memorized at least that a large segment or if, or if not the entire book itself. <laughs> and so and in many cases, I'm beginning to believe that, that what Jesus was doing, I mean, he is 100 percent God, but he's also 100 percent human. You know, they didn't have the Bible that we had now that they they took with them from place to place, although they may have had mm -hmm. books. You know, Paul may have had some books he took with them in certain places. But as far as having these large scrolls with the word of God on it, taking them with them uh, and traveling around, they probably didn't have that. So they had to commit to memory the scriptures. And the fact that you see Jesus quoting verbatim from Deuteronomy, from Isaiah, from Psalms, from all these different texts of the Old Testament, he didn't have that there in front of him. He's quoting it verbatim. And so you have a culture that largely depends on their memory and memorization, memorization skills uh, to memorize large chunks of information. And so as as they're telling these stories, as they are uh, listening to the messages of Jesus, you know, Jesus is a itinerant preacher. He's going around from town to town. Most likely he repeats many of his messages. And I joke and tell people that myself being a preacher, you know, I, during revivals, a lot of times I'll bring the same message I brought before. And about the second or third time I bring it, I actually start to get good at it uh, by that time. So. <laughs> I gotta memorize a little bit more, you know. So they they hear a lot of these messages of Jesus over the course of three and a half years, and so already having the memorization skills that they have, Matthew he knows shorthand, so uh, he he could obviously write these things down if he chose to do so. But having these skills, they could have easily have remembered the words of Jesus uh, and certainly the deeds. I mean, you see a man walking on water. That's not something you're going to soon forget. Uh, you, you see a man risen from the dead. That's not something you're going to forget. And so um, taking this culture as it is uh, and, and, and hearing these messages applied over and over and over again, and a lot of these parables, for instance, I, a lot of these parables that Jesus uses are, are messages that uh, are easily, easily remembered, such as the parable of the Good Samaritan. I mean, we could probably almost verbatim quote that, you know, as it as it was, as we have it from the, the New Testament, you know, having heard it so many times. So having the memorization skills, 
hearing the messages over and over again and all these things together, I don't see any reason to think that it's like the game Telephone. And having said that, I came across an interesting study from Psychology Today that said verbatim, it says smartphones are making us stupid. <laughs> Quite honestly, that's what it says. And I think what that shows is the exact opposite. The more a culture depends on technology, the more a culture depends on uh, different mediums to, uh, to to help them memorize, the less they focus on memorization. And so that's why you have more things like the game telephone where things are easily passed and changed over time. But I don't think this is applicable to cultures that are uh, largely oral-based. I hope that makes sense. It does. It does. It's funny you say that smartphones really are making us stupid too, because <clears throat> how many you know how many people out there listening to this podcast remember their sin- significant other's phone number? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> how many parents out there know their kids' phone numbers by heart? Now, um, you know, I'm sure some of them out there do, but that does illustrate a point that we're getting to a point. When I was a kid. And we had the little rotary phone. You know, you had to turn the little dial. Um, I had a ton of phone numbers memorized, but now I know a few, only a few. Um, I'm the same way, and I think that shows the reliance that when a culture has a strong reliance on technology, uh, we use a a lot less of our cognitive skills and especially rote memorization skills. Mm -hmm. But so the opposite is true, too. You have a culture that depends on rote memorization a whole lot better at right Uh, many many of the the uh, jewish um well the the rabbis would have to have the entire torah the first five books of the the bible memorized i have a hard time memorizing a paragraph and it's it's amazing (laughs) to me that these guys could actually memorize the entire first five books of the bible that blows my mind but, um, well, we recently we recently had a uh, a pastor from the Philippines come and share about his ministry at our church, and he he demonstrated how this is still possible. He quoted, gosh, I'm thinking it was at least a dozen or more psalms verbatim from memory, and 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 he didn't miss a word. I mean, there may have been a time or two that his wife was checking him. She 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 held the book to him. <laughs> She was checking him while he was quoting this, and there may be a word or two here and there that she may have to jog his memory. But by and large, he was quoting scripture, psalm after psalm after psalm. And these were large psalms, too, that he was quoting verbatim. And so it's still possible today if we just take the time to do it. Right, right. Now, that's memorization. What type of process did these scribes go through? Um when they were when they were copying from one text, you know, making a new copy. Well, yeah, and, and the scribes, you know, they held this to be the word of God, and we have evidence even yeah. in the New Testament that they held it to be the word of God. Um, now, now we do have variants, differences between early texts, but that really shouldn't be any major uh, problem for us. And the reason is, is that with English, we have Subject, verb, direct object, you know, uh, like right now, I am looking at a lamp. Uh, I being the subject am looking 
you know, the uh, verb uh, at the lamp, the, the object to which I'm speaking. Uh, Greek is they, they set everything off by case endings, which are three or four letters at the end of the word that lets you know whether or not uh, the 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 word is a subject, whether it's a verb, whether it's uh, a direct object, an indirect object, uh, whether it shows possession, that this all demonstrated by these case endings. So a lot of times the words were arranged in, in a matter to give emphasis to a certain thing. For instance, Dan Wallace, who's an expert on um, on biblical manuscripts, he he would he said that there's about 150 ways that you can say God so loved the world without changing the meaning of the text whatsoever. Now there may be little variants in how you produce it, but it still all says the same thing. So as we talk about New Testament texts and the variants, uh, that doesn't change any of the meaning whatsoever. But now so far as it, it is to preserve the text, they were absolutely uh, dedicated in preserving the text. They felt this was the word of God. Uh, and so this was uh, this was a, a a word that was that was translatable. They were translating it to different uh, uh, areas. Uh, mainly Greek and Latin were the two were the two major languages uh, where they translated early, in the early uh, first centuries. But nonetheless, they were very dedicated in keeping the accurate text because they wanted to ensure that they were preserving the truth of of God's word. Now, uh, from what I've read, <clears throat> these scribes would, once they got done copying a page, they would um, do a process where they would, would count certain letters over, down, uh, and, and basically they would go through, they would arrange the page in, in almost like a grid and would count certain lines down, certain uh, letters over, and check to make sure that it was exact. And if it was not exact, they would toss it in the fire and start over. Now, is that true or something along those lines? Well, it's, it's, it's true as, uh, pertaining to the Old Testament. Uh, the, the New Testament, you had um, – part of the problem with the New Testament is, is uh, one, you know, once again, paper was fairly expensive. And so a lot of times I was just reading today – that they would um, use a process of uh, – they would have un what they called unseals, which would mean that to get as much text as they could on the paper, they would uh, capitalize all the letters together, and they would squeeze the words together. And so as you read it, you could tell where the words began and ended, um, but you had, to, you, know, you had to read very carefully and allow them hmm. to get as much text on the paper as they could because it was you know, a fairly expensive task in the New Testament days. Um, th that is especially true. What, what you were just mentioning is especially true of the Old Testament. Now, I don't know if that's necessarily true of the New Testament transmission, but that doesn't mean – that shouldn't give us any uh, reason to doubt that they, that they didn't you know, translate over accurately the text. Um, you know, we're talking about a church that was greatly persecuted. That uh, often was running from here and there, uh, trying to preserve the text. Uh, the Romans were out after New Testament texts, so they had to be very careful preserving the texts. And so they they held this to be the word of God, and so they were very protective, and they were very uh, they wanted to ensure that they were preserving uh, the the text because they did believe that these uh, texts were as much the word of God as the Old Testament was. Very good. Okay. Now, um, <clears throat> I know that the Dead Sea Scrolls offered a lot for us to, to um, 
validate the Old Testament. Is there anything in the Dead Sea Scrolls? There's so many people that think that uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls offers us something that helps with the New Testament. What, what does the Dead Sea Scrolls do for us as far as the New Testament is concerned? Well, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, for those who don't know, these are uh, a body of, of, of scrolls that were found in, in the area of Qumran, uh, which is around the Dead Sea. And uh, they have uh, many of the Old Testament texts, many dating um, are some of the oldest Old Testament texts that have ever been found. Uh, with the exception of one, I've, I read about a discovery uh, of a potential scroll that may have been two, three thousand years old uh, that was found in uh, for use in, in some type of temple or something like that. And they used some technology to discover that, which actually may predate the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, but um, – there, there's there's some articles about that out there, um, but but I'll, I'll get back to the topic before I run a rabbit. Uh, but the Dead Sea Scrolls, <laughs> I'm bad about that. But they they primarily Old Testament texts uh, that we see. The Great Isaiah Scroll is one of the more important yeah. documents, one of the more important scrolls found there. But they also uh, provide uh, other um, documents that. Let us know about this one particular group, sect, if you will, S-E-C-T, uh, of Judaism known as the Essenes. Now, we know that there are the Sadducees, which I believe, honestly, in my personal opinion, that they're more of a political group than even a religious group. Uh, and yeah. that may be beyond the scope of our, our our podcast today, but our conversation today. But you had the Sadducees. You also have the Pharisees. You had uh, um, the um, – Samaritans, you had you know all these different groups. Well, the Essenes, they were the uh, a monastic group of individuals that lived out by the Dead Sea. I've even read that they may have even been uh, correlated with the priests, the priesthood before Rome invaded Israel. Uh, of course, they sold the priesthood to the highest bidder, and the Sadducees were the highest bidder. So, uh, what the Dead Sea Scrolls do allow us to see, as it pertains to this time area, this area, this era, is that it uh, lets us know a little bit more about this group called the Essenes. Now, one thing I have seen that it does relate, uh, that it does convey over to New Testament studies, is that uh, is in the area uh, pertaining to the Gospel of John. Before, uh, before early in the 1900s, uh, there were many individuals, liberal theologians and liberal uh, New Testament scholars who believed that the uh, allegory that John uses in his gospel about light and dark were more associated with Greco-Roman philosophy than Judaism. However, the Dead Sea Scrolls, we, in that we see these uh, the rule of the community and other uh, things maybe not necessarily that document, but we do see uh, documents that uh, talks about light and the children of light, the sons of light pertaining to the people of God, and the children of darkness pertaining to uh, the people uh, of against God, you know, of of satanic origin or, or individuals who are fighting against the cause of God. So one thing it does show us is that uh, the Gospel of John is far more. Uh, inclined to Judaism than than ever thought. In fact, this has even led some liberal uh, New Testament scholars to to hold that the Gospel of John was far earlier than they ever even imagined. So, if if there's one area that uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls that have uh, have helped with New Testament studies, it's the area of, of letting us know that uh, many of the it's given us insight into the mindset 
and teaching uh, capacities of, of many individuals in this day and time, especially of the group of the section, sect called the Essenes. Okay. Okay. There you go. All right. <clears throat> so let's get, let's get down to this here. How many manuscripts of the New Testament do we have? Excellent question. Um, so the New Testament is written from around 48 AD, with the earliest book being the book of James, uh, and perhaps even Galatians, to around 95. Some people say 100, but it's more likely 90 to 95, which is uh, ends with the book of Revelation. Uh, the earliest manuscripts we have date around uh, around 115. That's the John Ryland's Papyrus fragment, also known as P52. It is uh, it dates to within 115 to 125 A.D. Uh, that's that's less than 50 years. In fact, if if you consider uh, the Gospel of John was written around 85. Uh, you're talking about 30 years time between if it was about 115 to 85, only about 30 years time between the two. So uh, of of early New Testament manuscripts uh, from the first, let's say, from from the from the time of Revelation to uh, 300, we have about um, 5,838 copies. Manuscripts dating from A.D. 400 to 500, which is about a three to four hundred year gap, we have around 18,520 plus copies. And this is old data. The, the number is probably a lot more now than what than what I record here. So add the earliest manuscripts and those dating uh, from 400 to 500 A.D., we have a sum total of at least 24,358 early copies of the New Testament. That's pretty good. That's that's quite a bit. And so we've got somewhere around 24,000 manuscripts from the time of Revelation to about 500 AD. Um, how far back were these uh, um, books of the New Testament written? Well, you have fragments that are uh, that are coming up like the John Rylands fragment, which dates to about 115. Uh, you also have, uh, in, in a lot of circles, there's a talk about this uh, fragment of Mark's gospel that's been found, and and the data hasn't surfaced as of yet. I mean, we've been waiting on this thing for several years, and um, you know, I, I haven't heard anything else pertaining to it, but the talk is, and this is just rumor, that it may have been dated to around the first century. Uh, Dan Wallace made reference to that in a debate with Bart Ehrman. And um, it, I, think, I think the problem is now they're just waiting to, to have all the findings published and everything. But, uh, I mean, it's common knowledge that it's out there. What's the exact date? We really don't know. But it may be that it surpasses uh, this fragment of John as being the oldest New Testament uh, fragment that's been found. There are completed uh, copies of books in uh, in the 100s, uh, but when you go around to the 300s, you have some major codices that you find. So you have these you have these documents and fragments dating um, in second century and going into the third century, but you have some major works around 325 that surface. Uh, the Codex Sinaiticus, which is around uh, 325 AD, it contains all of the New Testament. Uh, the Codex Vaticanus is around 325 A.D., contains all of the New Testament except for Revelation. Uh, the Codex Alexandricus, 
which contains all of the New Testament, is around the 5th century A.D., which would be the 400s. Uh, the uh, Codex Ephraimi is around the 5th century, also in the 400s. This contains all of the New Testament except for the pastoral epistles. And the Codex Bizet, which is around the 5th century, contains uh, the Gospels and Acts only. So these are the completed codices you have, but you have all these different texts that are surfacing. In fact, uh, Dan Wallace, he has a website, uh, and I just it, it just completely left my mind. Uh, if you look up Dan Wallace in his research, he has a website where he has uh, digitalized many of these ancient documents, and you can see for yourself these documents, and they have the dates, and they range several documents to within the 2nd century, 3rd century. Of course, obviously, the, the farther out you go, the more the more copies you're going to have, but uh, it, it's just incredible the amount of copies we have and, and the amount of copies we have very early on. And like we said, between uh, the completion of Revelation up to the time of 400, you have at least 5,800 copies of the text see and <clears throat> why is that important it's important because there are many who are claiming that we don't have the bible as it was written by the original authors and here we have some 24,000 different manuscripts okay fine we've got all these manuscripts how do they compare we've got all these numbers how do they actually compare? Are they all over the map, or are they fairly similar? Well, they're, they're very similar. There's there are some differences, and we have to we you know we have to you know make mention of that just to be true uh, to what to the findings. But no major theological doctrine has ever been challenged whatsoever uh, due to any of the variants. Now, when we talk about the Greek language, as we mentioned before, the reason I mentioned that. They have different ways of expressing the same sentence is that you do have these these variants uh, that are there. I don't most of them were were inadvertent errors. Uh, sometimes there may have been these there these notes that uh, were to the side uh, as well. But by and large, the text generally pieced together quite well. In fact, uh, by the time you you count, and this is the most important thing I think I could say. By the time you count all the manuscripts and by the time you count all the quotations from the early church fathers that date from the late first century all the way into the fifth century, you have a text that can known that can be known with certainty as to what were in the originals to a degree of certainty of 99.7%. Now, this is important to note also that when we talk about historical studies, you can never say 100% and you can never say 0%. I mean, for instance, I could tell you that I ate an egg biscuit this morning with an iced tea, and it would be true. I did around 9 o'clock this morning. But unless you were there, you couldn't know with 100% accuracy. So you may could see the receipt. You may could meet some people who saw me there eating the biscuit and things of that nature and come up with a level of certainty close to 100%, but it would never be 100%. To have a degree of certainty to 99.7% is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, it's, there's, there's no other ancient document that could ever claim such certitude as this. And so uh, to, to have this in mind, to know that we have this type of level of certainty in the New Testament is absolutely phenomenal. But now, there, like I said, there are variants, but the variances are usually 
uh, perhaps just one little letter. Whenever they talk about these different variants and the ancient manuscripts, one comma misplaced will be considered a variant. Uh, one letter uh, misplaced or or something like that would be considered a variant. So many many skeptics will will see the claim saying that there are these different variants and think that the text has been altered, when in fact they're just minor details that they're discussing when they talk about these variants. Right, and the the numbers of variants at first might sound a little staggering, but from what I understand, going with your example, if a comma is misplaced, they count that as a variant. Of course, there wasn't commas, but you know, if there's one little marking that's misplaced, that's a variant. Well, now any other manuscript that also has that same marking in that spot, that's also considered a variant. Um, is exactly. that correct? As well as uh, well, absolutely. Uh, there's misspellings of most of the variants from what I understand are just simply things like misspelling of somebody's name, uh, misspelling of uh, various or variations on spellings of names of people and places. Absolutely. But basically well, and, and, any, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, well, I was just going to say, well, it's like what Dan Wallace said in a, in a, in a lecture too, that, um, you do have these little markings in Greek, you know, these little uh, uh, these little squiggle marks that show emphasis on certain words. Now, the unseals may not have that mm-hmm. as much as some of the others others do, but you know, if if one of those little markings were were misplaced, that would count as a as a variant, you know, or something like that. Or if, if one little you know mark was was missing, that would be the case. But as Dan Wallace has mentioned in a lecture, again. In the Greek language, with it being as flexible as it is and being a language that uh, that really emphasizes degrees that the English language just really cannot, uh, you can say 150 different ways or, or different uh, – uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You can word it, construct it in 150 different ways using the same words but put in different places to say the exactly the same thing. For instance – in the Greek language, if you wanted to emphasize the love of God, you may say loved God the world. Or if you want to emphasize God, you may say God loved the world. Or you may emphasize the world saying the world God loved. And in, in the Greek text, that would flow together, be the same thought worded together. And they may use different styles in this nature, but it's all saying the same thing. Now, by and large, the 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 the, the texts are, are phrased the same. It's you know, in, in many cases the same. But but these different little variants do not change the meaning of the text whatsoever, and um, it it just basically shows us the, the dynamics of the Greek language. And uh, so, what I'm trying to say is, in the end, is that many of these these variations that scholar, that uh, skeptics focus upon are really overblown, that they really say the same thing. And Dan Wallace and many others have mentioned that no major theological doctrine has ever been altered in any of these variants whatsoever. That's good. That's really good. Now, you brought up church fathers and how you can compare church fathers and what they, the things that they have written uh, when they're quoting scripture and compare those to the manuscripts. I've also read, in fact, uh, little plug on Lee Strobel's book, Case for Christ, the very first book I ever read um, as a Christian in the realm of apologetics. 
but uh, he's interviewing um, Dr. Stephen Boyd, I believe. And he makes a claim, Dr. Uh, Boyd makes a claim that the entire New Testament can be reconstructed from early church letters, songs, and church sermon notes alone. Um, uh, is that true? Have you read that as well and, and, and come across that in your studies? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and he's right because we know that there are at least uh, 86 – I was looking for the – I had it written down here somewhere. I think it was 86,000, at least 86,000 quotations from the early church fathers. Some have even said that that number may escalate to over a million uh, by the time you count all the early church fathers. So. You take this, and, and you mentioned something very important as well. Uh, a, a lot of this, a, a lot of this whole idea involving the the ideology that the New Testament has been changed comes from individuals who tried to say that uh, the, the, the divine nature of Jesus was something that was of legendary nature; that it came later on, that it wasn't an invention of the early church, that it was something that developed over time. Now, you mentioned something very important, and that was these early uh, creeds and formulations that we find strewn about the New Testament. One of the most important ones, uh, I think, we find is in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verses 3 through 7, mm -hmm. which tells us this dates – well, let me first of all state I'm getting ahead of myself – <laughs> this dates to within three to five years of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This early formulation, this is something that Paul picked up uh, while he was in Jerusalem and was passing on to the Corinthian church that which he had received. It didn't begin with Paul. He's passing on the information he had in Jerusalem just a couple of years after Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. Uh, he received this from, from Peter and the early disciples that Christ was was crucified, that he was buried, and then on the third day he rose again, and he appeared to all these different people that you hear about in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 3, through, 3 through 7. And so this dates very early on. Also, you see uh, the hymn in uh, Philippians, I believe it's chapter 2, if I'm not mistaken. Colossians 1 talks about the supremacy of Christ. This is an early um, creedal formulation as well. All of these, you, you see not only the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but you also see early evidence of them identifying Christ as the incarnate Son of God, uh, which is phenomenal. So this isn't a later development. This was part of the very early structure of the church itself, the very early belief of the church itself. And so um, – so, yeah, to answer your question, that's a long way to get around to answering your question. Uh, can we reconstruct the New Testament from that? Absolutely. I think we can. See, that's awesome. And so on one <laughs> hand, we've got this mountain of manuscripts, okay, that for the most part, they agree. I mean, to, there's, there's small numbers of variants, but it's all spellings of names and places and perhaps a misplaced letter here or there, but it does not change what the text is saying. It doesn't change any major doctrine. Then we have the fact that you can reconstruct the New Testament just from church letters, songs, and sermon notes. Okay, that's amazing. We definitely have the New Testament, but there's more. Um, 
along with the mountain of manuscripts that we have, that there's also translations, early translations of the New Testament into other languages of the surrounding nations of Israel uh, that apparently also uh, align with the New Testament we have today. What type of translations do we have? And, and really, you know, does it matter? Absolutely. We, we first of all want, want to remind everybody that uh, that Jesus and the early disciples were were trilingual, uh, meaning that they could speak three languages, read and write, and speak three languages. Uh, for instance, uh, Hebrew was the uh, biblical language that would be what uh, they would have read as far as the Old Testament. Their old, what we call Old Testament would have been their Bible of the day, and then um, Aramaic would have been a derivative of uh, the Hebrew language and uh, got it right that time. <laughs> it would have uh, been derivative of the Hebrew language and uh, be the common language of the day. And then, of course, Greek would be like the business language of that day and time. You know, for instance, I had a friend of mine who was a missionary to China, and uh, he mentioned that in certain parts of China that they taught English uh, because it was the business language of the day. So uh, that was the reason why they would mm -hmm. have written mm -hmm. the uh, texts in Greek as they did. And so uh, so you have a, a large degree of Greek manuscripts. Latin would also become a major language in this day and time. Uh, but uh, as we were talking about previously, uh, in the case for Christ, um, it's, it's mentioned, I think Bruce Metzger, I believe is his name, mentions that... Uh, that in addition, and I'll just go ahead and read his quote, in addition to the Greek documents, he said there are thousands of other ancient New Testament manuscripts in other languages. There are 8,000 to 10,000 Latin Vulgate manuscripts, plus a total of 8,000 in Ethiopic, Slavic, and Armenian. In all, there are about 24,000 manuscripts in existence. So, uh, of course, the number we have mentioned earlier 24,358, which is probably an old number. Uh, the number we see written in Ethiopic, Slavic, Armenian, Greek, Latin, all these different languages together gives us a really good picture of what the uh, original documents said. So all in all, uh, what we can see through this is that we can know, as we mentioned previously, with a great degree of certitude, what were in the original manuscripts. Amen. And so right there, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there was no game of telephone going on here. We've got this giant pile of manuscripts. We've got church notes, songs, letters, church fathers, quotes, and then we've got all these other translations. And guess what? They all align with each other. We have what the authors wrote down. Sure, there's some variants, but there's nothing of real substance that damages uh, any doctrine or our New Testament text. That is awesome. That is reassuring to people. Uh, you know, early on in my walk uh, uh, with Christianity, I was getting destroyed by people at work who were making these types of claims, quoting uh, the Jesus seminar, uh, quoting other people like, uh, um, oh boy, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, um, uh, uh, oh, who is that guy? Why am I not, a, or why I'm not a Christian? Um, oh boy, his name is escaping me. But all these different atheists that are attacking the text, along with other things, um, 
And here we can know, we can know that we do have the, the New Testament as it was written. Now, um, kind of, and this is my fault, we've been skipping around a little bit on, <laughs> on the questions I, I wrote out, but, um, you know, how does, going back to the number of manuscripts that we do have, um, oop, there went my dog. Can you hear him in the background? He's going <laughs> Just, nuts because because uh, my wife ordered Chinese. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, how how do does the number of manuscripts that we have, as far as the New Testament goes, uh, compare with other writings, other manuscripts from antiquity of that that same time period? Well, you know, I, I want to say two things about this. Um, you know, if if we talk about other religions, um, well, let, let me just answer this with with, with a couple of – with three examples here. Uh, for instance, Homer's Iliad was written about 800 B.C. The earliest manuscripts we have of Homer's Iliad uh, is around 400 B.C. with a time gap of about 400 years with about 1,800 copies, uh, and that number has gone up since – since the figures I give here, uh, Plato's uh, tetralogies were written in uh, 400 BC. The earliest manuscript we have is uh, eight, AD 895, with a time gap of 1300 years, with 210 copies. Uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars were writ was written in uh, 58 to 44 BC. The earliest manuscript we have was 900 900 AD. Uh, with a time gap of 950 years with 250 copies. Now, again, compare that to the New Testament, where we have evidence of uh, writing from within, I'd even dare say 30 years, uh, to um, with, with over 24,000 copies uh, dating to from within 30 to you know 400 years from that. That is incredible. And so – the, the yeah. New Testament stands head and uh, shoulders above any other document of antiquity whatsoever. But let me also say, if if we were to compare the New Testament to, like, say, the Bhagavad Gita or um, some of the documents of Buddhism and things of that nature, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Confucianism, they don't necessarily they they don't necessarily stand upon their founder. I mean, obviously, they was developed they were developed by their founder, but uh, if if there would have been if, if every detail of uh, Buddha's life were not true, Buddhism could still be, still be held true because of the philosophy that it holds, if it were true. The same thing for Hinduism, the same thing for Confucianism. Christianity is not the case. Everything rises and falls in Christianity upon the historicity of Jesus of Nazareth, his existence, his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and that he was also the fulfillment of of the Old Testament prophecies as well. And so with the resurrection of Jesus, you really have the ace of spades. You really do, because if it's true, <laughs> then you have just knocked down every other worldview. But if it's not, then as Christians, we have a problem. So and that's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus had not really been raised from the dead, then, then we're still in our sins, and then we're a people be, most to be pitied. So everything rises and falls upon the resurrection of Jesus, and so we have, as far as New Testament attestation, good reasons for holding that Jesus really did walk out of that tomb on that first Easter Sunday. Yeah, amen. You know, it's it's funny too. You know, people don't question the writings of, uh, you know, Homer's Iliad. 
People don't question those writings. People don't question, did Josephus really say that? I don't believe he did. Let's put a, a group of people together and we're going to we're going to vote on what we think Josephus really said. Nobody does that. Okay, but we have this huge mountain of manuscripts and all of this this evidence that we do in fact have the New Testament as it was written by the authors um, and everybody wants to go after it. <laughs> well, you know, and it's like Josephus, I mean, they attack Josephus' statement about, uh, about Jesus. However, <laughs> what they fail to realize is that he also mentions John the Baptist. He also mentions James, the brother of Jesus, who he calls, whom he calls the brother of Jesus. So it, it would be strange if, if Josephus really didn't mention Jesus while mentioning Joseph, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ, as he says in his book. So, I mean, the, the, only, reason, the only place where there's this level of, of skepticism is when it pertains to Jesus of Nazareth. And I think that shows a level of bias against Jesus and against Christianity, which um, is something that has to be confronted. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Amen. And and that's why uh, we do the types of things that we do. That's why we're into apologetics and uh, we're, we're trying to stand for and defend the truth. Absolutely. <clears throat> so what about archaeology? Is there any archaeological discoveries um, that confirm or disagree with the New Testament text that we have today? Well, I, I, I would think about um, t two or three um, that, that come to my mind. You know, in fact, there are several things, and, and this would probably go past the, the time that we have for the podcast if we were to talk about all the evidence for, for the book of Acts that's been corroborated uh, or, or evidence oh, yeah. that corroborates with the book of Acts. Uh, but two, two or three discoveries, I think, that uh, come to my mind is, is one is the Pool of Siloam. Uh, the Pool of Siloam has been found. Uh, I believe this pool, if I'm not mistaken, is the one that's referenced in uh, John chapter 5, where Jesus uh, – let me flip over there to it right quick just to double-check myself. Uh, but the Gospel of John chapter 5, it records uh, that Jesus heals a man, uh, this uh, blind man, at a uh, pool. And uh, let's see – the pool of Bethesda, excuse me, the pool of Bethesda. Uh, there were many individuals in the early uh, or late 1800s that believed that there was no such pool of Bethesda that hadn't been found. Uh, there's been no pool that had the amount of colonnades, the five colonnades that's mentioned in the Gospel of John. So therefore, they think the Gospel of John must be some type of forgery. He didn't know what he was talking about, so it must be an error. Well, early in the 1900s, it's even been corroborated now uh, in recent years. They have indeed found the Pool of Bethesda by accident, and uh, guessed how many colonnades that it had? Five, just exactly <laughs> what the Gospel of John said. And so the Pool of Siloam is another example. Uh, you have uh, – seemed like I read, if I'm not mistaken, that there have been at least – I'm thinking at least 20 names that have been verified in the uh, New Testament – that was mentioned in the New Testament that's been verified by archaeological evidence. Uh, you also have uh, further evidence surrounding the, the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre being the actual burial place of Christ. And then uh, also interesting information coming on the, the uh, Shroud of Turin. 
Uh, I spoke with an archaeologist recently uh, about the Shroud of Turin, and and more and more evidence. Seen, you know, I don't think there's any way we could ever positively say a hundred percent that it's the burial shroud of Jesus. But there are some interesting, intriguing things about that shroud, and more and more evidence seems to relate the fact that it could be, uh, it could be genuine. I spoke to an archaeologist, uh, and I won't give his name because I didn't give permission to say who it was, but uh, he told me that he believes to a degree of 95% certainty that it probably is authentic. If it is, that would have been one of the greatest archaeological finds ever. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of hmm. controversy that goes around the shroud uh, with different things and everything like that. But, uh, but, but by and large, discovery after discovery after discovery comes to confirm uh, what the New Testament has told us. You know, it's funny you bring up the shroud, and, and I'm still not 100% sure about the shroud. I interviewed um, Russ Brialt of uh, Shroud Encounter. His website, ShroudEncounter.com, and uh, he's he's an expert on the Shroud. He spent a good chunk of his life studying the Shroud and, and, and all the aspects of it. And to be honest, I went into the interview very skeptical of the Shroud. And by the end, I was, I mean, the eyebrows are raised and I'm going, huh, <laughs> you know, there's a lot there. And, you know, having not seen it myself and done the studies, uh, the, the research on it that, that these other scholars have, have been able to do, it's hard to say, you know, but there's lots of published uh, uh, research that, that has been done on that shroud. It's it's fairly fascinating um, when you look at it. So, yeah, I, you know, I've got a whole podcast on it. If anybody's interested on that, uh, you know, on the Shroud of Turin, uh, certainly interesting for sure. Well, and I'm like you. Again, I, I'm I, not. Uh, and I'm like you. I, I was, you know, I, I was kind of skeptical when I first heard about it. And, and let me just say that Christianity doesn't rise or fall on the shroud. I mean, there's evidence that's right. for the resurrection without the shroud. Even without it, you know, we have strong case for the resurrection of Christ. But if it is, uh, it, it would just further give us. Um, more details surrounding the, the the crucifixion of Jesus and the possible links uh, to the way the image was produced could, and I'm not saying it does, but it could give credence to uh, the way uh, or, or some of the effects that happened with the resurrection. But then again, you know that that's probably going beyond the scope of what we're what we're talking about here. <laughs> that's right that's right we are definitely following a rabbit trail right now but it's a fun one um so okay going back to the scriptures and the new testament another claim and this is this actually this question is a little bit of a rabbit trail in and of itself but it's brought up a lot uh that the roman catholic church uh is the one that um voted and established the New Testament during the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Uh, how much water does that hold? Well, you know, it's funny. I just uh, interviewed um, a New Testament scholar at, at Liberty University, and uh, I asked him about this very, very same thing. And he gave um, – he, he, he said something that, um, that, that I, I kind of want to borrow and I think it's a very good answer. All the Council of Nicaea did was certify what the church had already recognized. Uh, 
that's that's all they did. And, and um, you know, and I think they were right in doing so uh, because you had the Muratorian uh, canon. I believe that's right. Um, that there was a canon being produced that didn't have all the twenty-seven books of the New Testament, and so. Um, they they were combating that they were they were wanting to make sure they had the canon and and they saw what the church had already accepted and so they just verified that you know for for everyone and, and made an official proclamation on what the church had already recognized to be true and he gave uh, four and, and and he gives and I'm talking about Dr. Leo Purser a great man of God extremely intelligent very humble too he's the PhD director at uh, Liberty University. And uh, he said that depending on who you who you read, you may get different answers. But generally speaking, you have four uh, areas that the Council of Nicaea used to determine whether the book uh, was actually canonical. And the first thing is uh, ap- uh, apostolicity. Uh, did it have a claim to an apostle? Did an apostle write it? Uh, or did it come from someone who was who had an apostolic authority or the authority of an apostle? For instance, Matthew and John. There's good evidence to suggest that those that uh, those two gospels were written by the apostles that whose name they bear. Uh, John Mark. Mm-hmm. There's good evidence to suggest that he wrote down what Simon Peter had been proclaiming, and that Luke, while Luke wasn't an apostle, he had the apostolic backing of of uh, Paul the apostle as he was investigating and, and created a biography for my witness testimony. So that was the first measure. That was the first test. Did it have an apostolic authority uh, to the book? The second thing is uh, orthodoxy. Um, how orthodox was it? Uh, did, did, did it, um, did it proclaim the, uh, the truth of, of what the early apostles were teaching, you know, did, did it continue that that line of thinking? And so uh, the uh, the the third thing is, so you have the apostolicity, uh, the canonicity, or the orthodoxy, uh, and you also had usability. And so also the fourth one is antiquity. Uh, so antiquity was it there was a document old enough to have been uh, to have met the qualifications to have been written by an apostle. So, so these were the four: apostolicity was did it have apostolic authority? Uh, orthodoxy did it contain the right message of Jesus? Usability uh, was it used by the church? Uh, was it recognized by multiple church churches that the that the text was uh, canonical? And antiquity was it old enough uh, to have been? Uh, what it claims to be. So those were the four tests that the uh, Council of Nicaea used to uh, determine whether a book was was canonical or not. And that makes sense. And that makes sense. And, you know, it just comes down to these are the books that were already accepted. Uh, There was a little bit of a debate on Revelation and and the book of Hebrews. Um, But, I mean, for the most part, the entire New Testament was already accepted by everybody long before 325 AD. Absolutely. And in so, fact, that they were they were so stringent on their test, there were a couple of books that nearly made it. I mean, for instance, you had like, say, three, like, say there were three uh, strands of uh, canons out there. Uh, if, if two strands of canons had uh, a certain particular document and the third one didn't, they would probably accept it because it was used by the majority. 
But you do have a couple of books that didn't make the cut. They were accepted by some as being canonical, but they didn't quite make the cut because they they failed one of these tests. And a couple examples could be given in the Didache, uh, which recorded the early practices of the church. It's a good book to read, and I highly encourage people to read it, but it didn't have that level that they deemed uh, necessary to be considered canonical. Uh, I think The Shepherd of uh, Hermas may be another one, very popular book in the early church, but it didn't quite make the cut because it didn't pass the test. So they they were very stringent in the test that they used uh, to, to see whether or not a, a book met the qualification of being canonical or not. There you go. Uh, one of these days, I'd like to do a whole podcast uh, with somebody who's an expert on the uh, Gnostic Gospels. Uh, there's there's quite a bit, a lot of, of interesting uh, trails to follow there. But yeah, that's why the Gnostic Gospels didn't make it. I, I would uh, actually, they weren't in, written by the authors. Go I ahead. would encourage you to, to maybe get in contact with Dr. Leo Purser on that. He wrote an article in a... Uh, in a, in a, I think it's called. Uh, I don't have it with me at my my home office, but uh, it's a. Um, uh, Ed Heinsen is is the uh, editor of the book. Uh, he and Dr. Kaner are the editors of the book, but it's Encyclopedia Encyclopedia of Apologetics, I believe it is. And he wrote an article on Gnosticism for that. Uh, so so he's he's really up on Gnosticism. Hmm. Okay. That would be interesting. I'll have to look into that. So um, in, in what other ways can we know that we have the New Testament that the authors actually wrote? Well, I think if you if you just do a cumulative case of, of for some of the things that we've been discussing, you see that the that that the that the books that they that they wrote, that all the evidence we have that it was accepted as canonical, uh, plus the fact that you have guys listed as being the authors who you would normally expect to have to have been given this level of credence if it had not been true. For instance, Matthew is an example. Why in the world would you have Matthew being the author of a gospel if he didn't write it? I mean, Matthew was a tax collector, <laughs> which was viewed to be just slightly above pond scum in that day and time. Uh <laughs> oh, come on, Brian. We all love tax collectors. We we love the IRS. We love paying our taxes. We all do. Well, you know, they, they had as bad as much uh, love then as they do now. <laughs> Maybe even worse, you know. But, uh, I mean, why in the world? I mean, and because cause tax collectors were generally seen even as being Roman sympathizers by many, by many, by many situations. So why in the world would you have Matthew mm -hmm. writing the gospel if he had not written it? And, um, you know, the same is true with John Mark. Why would you have John Mark write it, uh, a document, if he hadn't written it? In fact, we read about him leaving Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey. Paul didn't want to take him back. Later, we find out that they reconciled. But why would you have John Mark? Why would you have Luke? who is most likely a Gentile, uh, write right, right. a biography about Jesus and, and, and uh, a biography on the early church if it were not true. It made no sense whatsoever. There was a lot of things that were written in the Gospels as well um, that uh, if these were concocted stories, you, you wouldn't have stuff like that. Uh, you know, Peter being... Um, 
<laughs> making the the terrible mistakes that he made. The women, you know, w women making it to the tomb before the men. Um, th there's just there's so many goofs that uh, the apostles make along the way. Uh, there's just there's there's a lot of details that if you were concocting a story, a legendary story, you just simply wouldn't put those in there. Exactly, and the point you made was is, is exceptional. The <clears throat> fact that they uh, it, we're, we're talking about a patriarchal society, and, and basically what they're saying is that we he men, we, we ran and hid when when the trouble came, but the women they stood they stood with Jesus and they were there with him at the tomb. We were too afraid to go to the tomb. That they were taking care of the body. They stayed <laughs> with him through the crucifixion, but we ran and hid. No one in their right mind would write something like that if it weren't true. <laughs> that is correct. Oh, that's fun. So, <laughs> so, so knowing all of this, you know, the, the mountain of manuscript evidence that we have, how can we use this as a springboard to share the gospel? Absolutely. I, I think what it shows us is that we have an evidential faith. We have a faith uh, that, that we can trust, not just because of the hope that we have, but because the evidence that it really is true Uh you know, you know, you take guys like we, we were talking before the podcast about J. Warner Wallace, uh, who was an ardent atheist. He read the Gospels and recognized as a cold case a homicide detective that, man, these are eyewitness stories that I'm reading about. They're, they're the same thing that I encounter uh, when doing research with, with eyewitnesses. Uh, you know, you have uh, Lee Strobel, who was a diehard atheist. Uh, we mentioned his book a while ago, The Case for Christ, who came to faith after uh, researching the claims of the Gospels. You have several individuals, and myself, you know, I would not be in the Gospel ministry today. In fact, I would not suggest anybody go in the Gospel ministry unless you're called to do it because it's tough work. You know, pastoring is a very tough job. Uh, so, I had no desire to go back in the pastoral field, but the reason I did is because I felt God calling me to do that. But it all started when he revealed that that uh, the word of God is true, that it's based upon historical truth that can be corroborated, that can be a, a verified and known. And so because of this, we see that our faith is not just wishful thinking. It's, it's based upon a real person. That, that really existed, that really performed the things that are written about him. And our basis for our faith is, is because that one Jesus of Nazareth really did come out of that uh, tomb on the first resurrection morning. Praise God. You know, and it, it, it comes down to we do know uh, what the authors wrote down. We do know what the Holy Spirit in, inspired them to write um, we know that these scriptures are rooted in real history. We know that Christ was crucified. Uh, we know, even from secular sources, that um, not only was he crucified, but that the apostles and the early believers believed that he had rose from the dead, so much so that they, they were willing to give their lives uh, in, in horrific martyrdom deaths. And it wasn't just that they believed he rose from the dead. They saw him. You know, people don't die for what they know to be a lie. Oh, absolutely. They, you know, these, these, these men and women, they saw him alive with the wounds from the cross. 
and he was in a glorified body. He was in a glorified state and they not only became believers. This is not like, you know, when, when, a uh, you know, somebody converts to Islam or not Islam, but, uh, uh, Mormonism, uh, because they have a burning in their bosom, right? No, these guys actually saw him after he'd been crucified. They knew he was crucified. They knew he had died on that cross and then they saw him alive again and they became zealous, Absolutely. even to the point of horrific deaths to, to, um, proclaim that truth that this guy who was God in the flesh came down. He lived a perfect life. He didn't sin once. Okay. And he gave himself willingly as a sacrifice, basically a payment um, for, for, for the debt we owe. Absolutely. See, we all sin. We all screw up. We all offend God who created us. And God is like, listen, justice must be served. Um, something must be done about everybody's sin. You have to be judged for your sin. But here's the deal. I will take your punishment. I will take it for you. And Christ dies on that cross for us. And so it's it's awesome. It's amazing that, that we have a God that is both just and loving at the same time. Absolutely. Justice must be served, but he will take that penalty upon himself for us if we trust in him and what he did on that cross for us. It's absolutely amazing. It's, it's humbling. Praise God. Amen. Amen. Well, well, Brian, it was, it was an honor to have you on the show. Um, I always love talking to you. You're, you're an amazing guy, friends. Uh, his website, it's, uh, bellatorchristi.com. I'm going to tell you how to spell that because as I was Googling it, I, I ended up with, I don't know what appears to be some type of, uh, I don't know, MMA <laughs> fighter woman or something. I don't know. I, something odd came out and I thought, you know, I probably should spell that. <laughs> so it is B, <laughs> it is B E L L A T O R C H R I S T I.com. Bellatorchristi.com. You can also look him up as just Brian Chilton. You can find him on Facebook. Uh, or you can just Google his name and you'll you'll come up with him. And uh, great podcast, lots of good articles on his website. Um, so Brian, yeah, I'd love to have you back on sometime. Absolutely, anytime. A wealth of information. There's lots of good stuff to talk about. So uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Michael. It's a joy and privilege to be with you. All right, that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. This has been Michael Bone with the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. You just heard an interview with, again, Brian Chilton of the uh, BellatorChristi.com, Bellator Christi podcast. Look him up. He's got a lot of good podcasts out there. Also, uh, his website's got quite a few articles, uh, really. He's got articles for days. So check his podcast out. Check out his website, BellatorChristi.com. With that, I love you guys, and we'll hopefully... <laughs> See you next week. Sing it out loud.